correctly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. radiocom Welcome to Me and Steve Talk RPGs, a podcast where me and my friend Steve try and help you get the most out of your role-playing game experience. Welcome back to Me and Steve Talk RPGs. I'm here with my friend Steve. Hello. We have a very special guest on this week, but before we get into that, let's talk about our podcast of the week, Eberron Renewed. Oh, yes. Boys over at Eberron Renewed. GM Eric, who we had on... Oh, geez, it's been like a year and a half ago now. Runs the the games for Everon Renewed. They're playing in, as you might guess from the name, the D and D world of Everon. But with their second campaign, which has been going for quite a while now, they have converted to the Genesis RPG system to actually run the games in. So uh, it's a very good show. Yeah, and Everon is is fascinating. I mean. Eberron and Genesis is really cool. But yeah, Eberron Renewed, check them out. Yep, and we'll put a link for that in the show notes if you're looking to find it. But with all that, let's get on to our, our guest for this week, Steve. Yeah, and as mentioned at the top of the episode, we do have a very special guest today. We have Bruce Nesmith. We do want to welcome you to the podcast and, and talk about all the cool things that you've been part of. And you know, I understand that you're putting out a book. Yes, it's great to be here. Uh, yep, I made the transition to novelist with my first book, uh, Mischief Maker. So very happy with it so far. Very cool. Very cool. So we probably have some listeners that, that may be familiar with your name for various reasons, but you've got quite a history in the gaming industry going back to what? I believe you started in the very, very early 80s. Oh, yeah. I can give you the, uh, the rundown of my uh, resume, as it were. Uh, I started in 81. I was hired straight out of college and went to work for TSR and did quite a variety of things for them. I was initiator games for their fledgling, which turned into failing. I uh, moved into position for their Marvel role-playing game, wrote uh, stuff for D&D, wrote stuff for AD&D. Hello, folks. Future Steve here, and just wanted to add in a couple of things because apparently the recording ate some little bits of the dialogue here and there. Anyway, what Mr. Naismith was telling us was that he was originally hired to work in the computer games division at TSR and then started doing some work in game design and development, including the Marvel Super Heroes title that TSR published at the time. And then in my second tour of TSR, I had a four-year break there. I came back and uh, worked in uh, a variety of their campaign worlds. Most notably, I was the uh, lead writer for the Ravenloft 2nd Edition box set. Uh, but I also worked with Gamma World, did the 4th Edition Gamma World rule set. Uh, I did some of their board games, uh, like First Quest and uh, Dragon Strike. Also worked on a variety of other their campaign worlds while I was there. And then I moved from there into video games, where I joined uh, Bethesda Softworks and worked on the Elder Scrolls series. Most pertinently, I worked on uh, Daggerfall, which was uh, the first really big role-playing game from them, although technically second in the series. But Daggerfall really captured the imagination of people. Left to do some other things for a few years, came back, and was fortunate enough to end up being the lead designer on the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim. Also had uh, important roles on Fallout 3 and Fallout 4, uh, worked on Fallout 76. Uh, back in my first tour, I worked on Terminator Skynet. So I've done whole bunches of things over a lot of years. Well, I think that's fascinating, though, and, and I hadn't realized, actually, that you'd worked on some of the non-D&D products at, at TSR. Oh, yeah. And I, I find talking with design game design people fascinating because you find out just these weird little nuggets of information that, like, when you look back, it all makes sense, but you'd never dream that's how it happened. <laughs> There's actually an interesting story with that about uh, Gamma World. I've always had a real soft spot for Gamma World. There's just something about that 
environment that I find uh, really wild and engaging and fun. And when Jim Ward, who is the uh, original creator for Gamma World, uh, gave me the assignment to do the fourth edition for it, one of the things that I really desperately wanted to do was fix the second edition AD&D thing with negative armor classes. <laughs> so uh, seeing as I have a, a bachelor's degree in math, which, you know, that's why I became a writer, of course, I decided to apply that skill and see if I could turn the system around. And I was largely successful. And lo and behold, decades later, fifth edition D&D uses the exact same mechanics. Although they use uh, a lot of other things that I think are smoother and better than the stuff I had. I literally just did that conversion to the D20 system, whereas they uh, actually put in all kinds of other cool stuff to make that game a lot better. But you have the same uh, the same basic armor class starts at 10 and goes up, roll a 20. Bigger numbers are always better in all circumstances. Uh, rule system. And uh, I was very proud of it at the time. Well, that's, they actually went to that with 3rd uh, edition, I believe, in Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, they might have. 3rd uh, and 4th edition were ones I didn't engage with nearly as much. 5th uh, mm-hmm. edition really, I thought, is the the pinnacle. Even though I'm an old 2nd edition fan, I think 5th edition is their best-to-date effort. So 3rd edition and 4th edition, you know, I was busy having a life with children and houses and things like that when those editions <laughs> were coming out. Oh, yeah, that's... That is, you know, but like you said, that's that's one of those deals, you know, we were we were chatting before we started recording a little bit and, you know, said, that, yeah, you know, someone develops this thing and suddenly everyone uses it. And so I would love know. to say they stole from me, but I really suspect they developed it on their own. I can't claim that I created it. I can just claim that I also created it. <laughs> well, you were there. You use the same numbers. Yep. Yep. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I did not realize that. I, I've heard a lot about Gamma World, but I've never actually seen it or, or played it. So I have a soft spot for role-playing games that have good slash fun character generation systems. Okay. Sometimes the, the gameplay doesn't support it as well, or the campaign setting doesn't support it as well. But you know, at the end of the day, when you've spent some time creating a cool character and you really, really like it, that goes a long way. And that that's something that you know, I'll put up with other negatives if I have that going for it. So before we, we get into our, our eventual quote-unquote topic for the show, let me ask you a question as far as your, your history with games. You've talked, you did a bunch of stuff that was, was very much system design. Do you kind of, I, I don't know if there's, a, a, a what do you want to say, a real line of demarcation with this, but... A, do you feel like you're more of a system guy or more of like a writer story guy? I've done both. Um, the trick is that there's a lot of people who do classic writing and stories in both environments, to be honest. And there's not as many people who are good at the systems side. So I've ended up being a systems design specialist. But, you know, for example, I wrote the second edition Ravenloft campaign setting. You know, mm. there, if you read that setting... There's not a lot of rules in there. And in fact, one of the background stories is that the first draft I wrote had almost no rules. It was just a campaign setting. It was just flavor and how to make your game feel like it was a gothic horror setting. And my boss at the time, Jim Ward, came back to me and he said, there's not enough rules in here, Bruce. You've got to give them rules. You've got to give them something that makes it feel like this game is special and like they couldn't have come up with that on their own. So I had to go back and and add rules. But at the same time, when I did the Game World game, you know, while I wrote background stuff there, that was more of a systems challenge. And the thing I specialized uh, in at Bethesda Softworks was also system design. Although I did an entire uh, Thieves Guild for Elder Scrolls Oblivion, which, by the way, I forgot to mention in my resume. That's a really big oversight on my part, <laughs> which is an entire guild storyline of uh, several interlinked quests. So... At the end of the day, I would say I do both, but uh, I have specialized more in system design. Okay. It was it was just, what do you want to say? I was just wondering, and, and you having said you have a degree in mathematics, you know, again, I, I've found people who, who design systems kind of by, it feels right, and I'll check and make sure the math works, and there's other people who, who very much, okay, the probability says this, 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 and this, and so that's how we're doing it. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm the later, latter guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to be honest, when I left college, I mean, I was a math guy. I was not a great writer. And I had to learn on the job the hard way how to be a good writer. And I will give all the credit in the world to TSR and to especially my wonderful editors, probably most notably Andrea Heyday, for turning me into a much, much better writer than I probably ever had the right to be. And by the time I was in the second half of my career, I actually was a halfway decent writer. And by the time I got to the end of my career, I'd like to say I'm as good a writer as I'm a system design. But that was a longer haul. I started off being good at the math stuff, and I had to learn how to be a good writer. Well, I think, you know, isn't that kind of a left brain, right brain thing where where one is more statistics and one is more creativity? Or do you find that system design involves a lot of creativity as well? I mean, to me, it would seem that... Yes, maybe you're finding creative application, but not you, know, you can't reinvent math necessarily, I guess. You don't reinvent numbers and you don't reinvent mathematical relationships, but you can invent new ways of expressing it. And we see that all the time in both tabletop games and in video games, new ways to have relationships between numerical systems. And the other thing that I discovered, because initially I thought very much the same as what you just said. Creativity is a muscle that you can exercise and you can get better at it. Uh, a lot of people tend to believe that creativity is something that you're either born with and you have it or you don't. And I will say that is patently false. I think you can be born with advantages in there. It can be easier for you. But at the end of the day, you learn to be creative by learning to look at things from different angles by willing, be willing to try things that seem silly or nonsensical and see where that leads you and not just stick to the easy path. Creativity is something you can exercise and is something you can get better at. It's, it's definitely something that uh, improves with practice. Cool. I don't know that I've ever, I mean, I can't say that I disagree with anything you said there, but I don't think I'd ever heard it stated that way. <laughs> well, certain people enter the playing field with advantages in certain areas. Or disadvantages. You know, I've worked with people for whom math is just a struggle. It's a real challenge. But, you know, when it comes time to write, say, writing dialogue, which is something that happens in the video game industry a lot, they're just naturals at it and it comes easy for them. But that doesn't mean they can't learn to do the other better or get a better understanding of it. And my own experience as somebody who is not a good writer, um, being a decent writer, you know, kind of proves the point of. Uh, you can learn to get better at this, you know, and I think also other experiences contribute to it. You know, I was a voracious reader when I was younger. Uh, now I just read a lot. And, you know, all those experiences, everything that you shove into the grinder to mix up and give you the experiences to see things from different angles and to have these new ideas to build off of, you know, they help contribute to creativity because in a lot of ways, your creativity is taking a little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from over there, and putting it together in a way that hasn't been seen. I'm a big fan of saying that I think, and this is probably going to get email from people, <laughs> that I am 10 times the game designer that Gary Gygax was, but he did something that I have never done and never will do, and that is he created something wholly new when he created role-playing. And that was beyond my skill set and probably remains beyond my skill set. And that is something he was able to bring to the table. But people like myself were able to take that uh, raw material and forge it into something that is really good and has captured the imagination of everybody across the world and engaged with so many people. And that's something Gary didn't do as well. But he created something original. And that is really, really rare. Yeah, yeah. Well, it also speaks to, though, you know, it's an exponential expansion, right? Because, you know, like you said, Gary, you know, there's debate with him, Arneson, et cetera, but we'll just call Gary the, the father of, of role-playing as we know it. And yeah, that, that was what he brought to the table. But then, you know, like, you know, you worked on it and, and, you know, various people you worked at with TSR and then other games, you know, sprang up and, you know, it just keeps branching and branching and branching off of all these things. So, yeah, I mean, like, I'm sure the, you know, the first people that played baseball were probably not as good as 
the guys that can't even make minor league teams now. Well, that's that's just what I was about to say is like Babe Ruth is considered one of the best baseball players of all time, but Babe Ruth wasn't playing up against guys who were throwing 100, 100 plus mile per hour fastballs. Yep, exactly. And I think, you know, I agree that I agree with you. I think I think that Gary was a, a genius when he created the game, but I think we've seen a lot of innovation over the years. And and I mean, I would agree that I, I you know, just playing some of the games like you said about uh, Ravenloft second edition. I've played Ravenloft second edition. I love that game <laughs> like that, that setting. Thank you. Um, and and the video game stuff that you've been attached to and all of that. I mean, it's just it's awesome. <laughs> well, and you want these things to keep evolving. That's a desirable state. You know, I want the people who come after me, now that I'm a retired, everybody's coming after me, to be better than I was. I want them to do things that I would never have thought of doing. I want them to push the envelope and to push the things that I love into new areas and make them even better. I want them to be 10 times the designer that I am. That's the way it ought to be. That's that's what you should desire for these industries. Yeah, no, that, that that's really cool, and especially to hear you know you say that yeah you you want people to take what you've done and build from it, you know, as opposed to being this is my thing, don't you dare touch it. Oh, you know, <laughs> the precious. No, 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 that's that that's that's not the way to treat it at all. Anybody who gets on their ego hobby horse with that, you know, they're already stuck. You know, they can't move off of themselves. They can't they can't push it forward very far anymore. But the vast majority of the people that I've met in the industry are all for this kind of innovation. Uh, they're all for uh, the next generation of writers and designers doing things better and finding even more interesting things to uh, create, because that's that's what we did to the people before us. And, you know, they want to be able to play those fun games. I want to be able to play cool games that I've never thought of. <laughs> yeah. And that's another thing you know, that we've learned doing the podcast is it's amazing, you know, talking to game designers and i i know when i was younger i would think you know well if you designed a game you would think your game is the best game so why would you play another game but yet talking with the designers that we have it seems that designers are often even more voracious consumers of other games than even what do you want to say consumer players who play a lot of games oh absolutely uh when i was at tsr the last thing any of us wanted to do was play Dungeons and Dragons. We spent all day in it. We rode all day in it. We loved that game. We were steeped in its lore and its systems. And nobody wanted to play that after hours. Well, maybe not nobody. There were a few people. But the vast majority of us did not. We were instead drawn to things that were more off to the side, that were new and different. Um, that's what was exciting to us. You know, the Amber role-playing system comes out and all of a sudden everybody's gaga over that. Villains and Vigilantes comes out and everybody wants to play that. Uh, you know, all these other games. Uh, Pendragon was a big hit. You know, those are things that, that captured our imagination and were fun for us because they weren't things we were used to. So they could be new and exciting and dangerous and all those kind of cool things. Mm -hmm. Well, before we just keep going with this for the whole time we were going to take from you, let's actually maybe uh, break into what we had kind of intended to be our overall topic. And that is something that, given your background, I think you're maybe not uniquely, but definitely extremely well qualified to speak on. And that's the cross influence between computer games and role playing games, because your career, as you mentioned earlier, started off with doing computer games based off of tabletop games and then you've moved into the computer games industry and now you know we're seeing a lot more tabletop games coming back from the video game side of things yep yep i think part of the trick for me at least is to stop seeing the barrier between the two as a tall thick wall it's it's a low flimsy wall because at the end of the day, a game is a game. Uh, these kinds of entertainment, the field that you play them on has advantages versus and has advantages and disadvantages depending upon what that is. If you look at a board game, it has certain restrictions based on the fact that there is no game master, there is no story that's being told. It's a set of mechanics 
and you're trying to work within those mechanics to defeat the system or to defeat your opponents. And then you move from that to a role-playing game where you've actually got a game master and you're telling stories. That's a completely different environment. But we don't see those as separated as we do with the video games versus the tabletop games. And part of it's because the base equipment you're using, the computer or the, the console, is so important to what it is. But they're still just a games. And a game is a game. And so when you look at the games that were first put on the computers, they held uh, relationships to board games mostly. And then when the computers started to get a little bit better, you started to see games like, uh, I'll go to the, the classic, Ultima. You know, Lord British himself puts Ultima out on the Apple II Plus, and everybody's got to play it. And it's basically Dungeons and Dragons. And it's because he played and loved Dungeons and Dragons. And a lot of these old school gamers played and loved those games, and they wanted those games on there. And so you started to see popular board games having versions on computers. You started to see role-playing games having versions on computers. And now you've got role-playing games. I'll focus on that since that's kind of what we're talking about here. Doing parallel development. They're developing on both of these platforms, and they're both doing things. And the people who are making these, they play both. You know, Lord British, he played Dungeons and Dragons. He loved it. People at TSR, they played Ultima. They loved it. So you play both of these games, and you start picking pieces from each of them to use with the other. Because you're going to steal from the best. That's, that's how it works. And that cross-pollination hasn't stopped and isn't going to stop. You know, a lot of the things that you see uh, with critical hit systems and whatnot came about because it's easy to do on a computer. It just wraps into the role. It pops up. You see it automatically. You don't have to work hard for it. Well, the people playing the uh, paper and pencil games, they want to have that too. Well, okay, how can we make that easy? How can we make that functional and, and work in this environment? Because people love that kind of stuff. So there's, there's a lot of things that cross back and forth. Well, and, and to jump off of that, the you know game that you've worked on, the VAT system in the Fallout franchise, that's very much drawn directly from pen and paper RPGs. There's a lot of pen and paper RPGs that have a targeting system where it presents you the percentile to hit Yep, and that was actually done intentionally. In Fallout, they wanted a little bit of a callback to classic gaming. They wanted the Fallout 3 game to feel a little bit old school, which is why you'll see that they use the special system, which came from the old Fallout games, uh, but also used the kind of crunchier percentage system for uh, the skills. And even in Fallout 4, they continued that. But one of the things that I did in uh, Skyrim Elder Scrolls V, was I wanted to go the other direction. I wanted to hide that stuff. It's still there in the background, but you just have bars that show your progress. You're not worried about numbers. It either just works or it doesn't work. You don't worry so much. You know you're getting better at it. We wanted a, a more seamless experience. And neither of these is right or wrong. It's just a design choice as to what are you trying to do with, uh, with the appeal. And like you say, that's you know, owes a lot of its uh, character to things that you saw in other hit location games. Now, I do have a little bit of a question, though, in that, and this is something I brought up when we talked with actually who introduced us being Jay Little. Do you feel like there's a different philosophy in how you design a tabletop game versus a video game? Because by the nature of a tabletop game, it's it's more open, I guess is the best way to say it, where with a video game, because it is computer-based and you can only program so much, you know, it's, it's a, more, a more curated experience, you know, whereas with a tabletop game, in some ways, you're really just providing a tool set. Does that make any sense? Yeah. In a tabletop role-playing game, you're winging it. And part of the joy of those games, which is why we keep coming back to them, is that sense of, I can do anything, that it's actually like life itself. I can make choices that are not from a limited set and do whatever I feel like doing. And the game will respond to me, aka the dungeon master will respond to me because he's another human being who can interpret what I'm saying and try to make sense of it. And you don't have that with a video game. So that's something that separates those two. Uh, I think when you're designing a video game, you can go for a complex set of rules and realism 
that you cannot do in a tabletop game. At least if you try to do it, you'll end up with a rules nightmare that people won't be able to play well. Um, so take, for example, 5th edition D&D and compare it to 2nd edition D&D, the two main systems that I'm most familiar with. 5th edition, they decided to streamline a lot of things from 4th edition and make the game simpler, more digestible, easier to play. Let's get to the fun. And that's the right call. That's what you need to do in a tabletop experience. You want to identify what's the fun and you want to get people to it. Whereas in video games, you can take all of that stuff and have it being handled in the background, invisible to the player. You've essentially got the invisible game master, who's your computer, who can do all that stuff for you. So you can have this incredibly complex system, you know, like VATS or uh, like a lot of the combat mechanics that I've created for some of these games that feels right and feels realistic. And you don't know what's going on under the hood. You just know when I shot the arrow, yeah, it, it hit. And it, it felt like it hit as hard as it should have hit in that circumstance. And therefore, you get to the fun, which is shooting the arrow and having it hit the target and having the target actually respond to you. But on tabletop, you don't have that luxury. So instead, you have to go to its strengths. And its strengths are the storytelling aspect, where you don't get five choices as to what to do. You have infinite or unlimited choices as to what to do. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, for me... And and I'm in that age bracket where like, or at least for me, I really discovered, like I had played, you know, like Super Nintendo level stuff before I discovered role-playing games. And I think for me, that's been the thing that I latched onto was that, that very open-ended, I can do anything, you know, the only limit is my imagination where, you know, playing, you know, Super Mario Brothers or, you know, whatever assorted, you know, side-scroller Mm-hmm. whatever that that was you know that was what was made then because of you know processing power and et cetera but you know that that's the thing you know and now that things have progressed it feels much less that way although you're still limited but uh, another thing that, that came up before we uh we actually started recording was that you mentioned you know you've seen in in your time in the industries that the what do you want to say? The overall design mentalities have changed considerably, at least in the tabletop space. Has that also happened on the video game side of things? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. With the increase in processing power, there is a move to realism. So it used to be in the, you know, you go back to, say, the Ultima days, right? You were either in this square or you were in the square in front of it or the square to the left of it or the square to the right of it. You couldn't be between the squares. There aren't squares anymore. The whole idea of squares doesn't exist. There's a rock. Maybe you can climb it. Maybe you can't. And it starts to feel much more realistic. And the formulas and math that underpin making that work are hideously complex for something as simple as, can I jump on top of that silly little rock? Uh, But they make everything feel more realistic. And that's what the computer does well. And that's what we're going to continue to see a move toward is to make things feel realistic, to get that immersion factor. You see that the newest games are always hyping their graphics. You don't see them hyping their AI. You don't see them hyping other stuff. You see them mostly hyping, look how wonderful and amazing our graphics are. You know, everything looks so realistic. You know, people's mouths move and it just looks like a real person up on the screen there. Well, that's not necessary to play the actual adventure. But that's something that draws you in. It makes you feel like you're immersed in the game. You know, when you play a tabletop game, I'm immersed in my head in the game. And that's the advantage that it has. But, you know, the formulas that I put together for uh, Fallout 4, I could not have done in Daggerfall. It just, it wouldn't have worked. The realism that we had in Fallout 4 was unapproachable in Daggerfall. So Daggerfall had closer ties to the tabletop game set because it had more limited capabilities whereas fallout 4 that's going to be much more of a realistic game so yeah it's they're going to continue to innovate in in those directions i suspect okay now and this this actually just occurred to me while you were answering that you know because again when we were talking you know that there was a design school through probably the second half of the 80s you know up 
at least through the 90s, where there were a lot of role-playing games, tabletop games being developed that were very simulationist, had a lot of little fiddly rules bits, you know, as we call them now, crunchy wasn't the term then. But do you think that with the rise of processing power and the ability to do that realism and simulation in the computer games, that has actually been kind of a driving force in the trend that we've seen more recently in tabletop games where they tend to be going more the other direction where there are a little more rules light, more narrative and, and abandoning, you know, the, well, you know, you take, you know, this many D six of falling damage for every 10 feet or, you know, whatever the other. Right. Um, I think, I think that's part of it. I think, it's also a matter, uh, and you and I were talking earlier about this um, before the recording started. The late 90s to me was a time of explosion in role playing games, tabletop role playing games, where designers and design houses were trying all kinds of crazy things, all kinds of crazy rules and settings. And I mean, somebody made, you know, the high school role playing game. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were coming up with all kinds of. Ima uh, imaginative stuff and trying all kinds of things and some of it worked and some of it didn't and some of it worked spectacularly and some of it failed spectacularly and those lessons learned are being applied now not just from the 90s but from the whole period up until now that tabletop gamers don't want for the most part incredibly crunchy rules they're willing to put up with a certain amount of crunchy but the more rules intensive you get, the more you limit your audience. And so you have to decide what is the audience you want to go for? What, where, where is your line? What's your pain threshold, if you will? And that means very naturally, it's how can we do something as simply as possible and still give you the, big, the best experience possible? And it moves the other direction in video games where they want it to be a seamless experience and they want it to be as simple as possible to do while making it seem as realistic as possible. So they're each kind of pushing to their natural strengths. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that I think that was sort of in a way what I was asking, you know, I think because like you said, it, it, it's a matter of going to what you're better at. And you do see, you know, most of the people that I know that are big into tabletop role-playing games are also massively into video games. I'm just the weirdo, but anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I just find it that, that that's really kind of a, a weird kind of dichotomy to me that it, it seems like, you know, for a while it, it felt like RPGs were going for realism and computer games would be better at it, but then it, it's sort of crossed and... yeah. Well, part of the real, realism push, if you go back far enough, is, you know, first edition D&D, &D, you know, Gary had, you know, a table for everything. And every table was a completely different rule, done a completely different way. But if you want to do something, if you looked hard enough, somewhere in there, there was a table for it. And one of the things people kept asking for is they wanted more realism in their games. They wanted to feel like they were really there. There was this desire to be immersed. But the gamers at that point, you know, they were the hardcore crew. They were the crew that could handle that. They weren't there for an evening's entertainment. You know, they were verging on lifestyle. You know, <laughs> that's where I was in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just a limited audience. And these days, tabletop role-playing games have a much wider audience. And in order to support that wide audience, you can't turn them off with, you know, pages and pages and pages of rules. It's just not going to fly anymore. You know, you're much better off getting to the story, getting to the fun. And the fun isn't in looking stuff up on a table. It just isn't. And, you know, that's one of the things that I attribute uh, D&D 5e's success to, you know, is they really stripped it down and said, what can we do to make everything simpler and let them get to the fun of it? Makes sense. So I don't know, it's kind of out of the blue question maybe, but what maybe, is is there any one thing that you learned designing either tabletop games or computer games that drastically affected the way you approach working on the other? I know you haven't worked professionally on tabletop games in, in a while now, as I understand, but sure. you know, is, it has, was there any sort of epiphany created by one for the other? Um, there's probably a lot of little ones, but one of my favorites 
uh, that I bring out for times like this is cheating is good. And of course, it's one of my favorites because it's the antithesis of what you think ought to be the rule, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at a lot of computer games, their AI, they, it cheats like a bandit. You know, it peeks at what you're doing. It, it follows a completely different set of rules. It does things that just aren't allowed otherwise, you know, all in the service of how can we make the game better? How can we make the player's experience better? That's probably what I should say. And that's one of the things that I also carry through into my game mastering when I do tabletop role-playing games. And I just recently finished a four-year-long D&D 5e campaign, birth to death, level one to level 20, uh, with a grand overarching story that started on day one and was able to be carried through all the way to the end. And one of the successes that I had there was I cheated like a bandit. You know, I did whatever was necessary to make their experience good, to make the story work, even if it wasn't technically a part of the rules. And I've used that both in video games where, you know, the enemies cheat like heck, the game cheats like heck, and in tabletop games. So it's it's kind of an odd thing to say, but cheating is great. <laughs> well, that's, you know what, though, I think that's, that's something that, that I've long said is that sometimes you just need to do what works and set the rule book to the side for the moment. Yep. Yep. And you can only do that in, in role-playing games. You know, cheating is great does not work in a board game. That's just, there's other ways you can make that, that work where you have, you know, other uh, aspects of the game is a different rule set than you do, but people don't see that as cheating. I see it as cheating because I want a unified rule set, but they don't see it as cheating. (laughs) Well, but I think that that goes to kind of what we were saying before, where if you want a very, very structured rule set, then you can go play that in a video game, especially now with the multiplayer and and all that. Your friends can get together and you can go play whatever game it is you know the one that i played the most that regard was world of warcraft Uh but you know you can go play that together and now you can go to to, you know classic trope you can go beat them up and take their loot all together and no one has to do the prep time is the the dm or whatever because the computer does all that yep yep and that's time management is one of the great advantages video games have and why I was so, so pleased to see the resurgence in Dungeons & Dragons. Because our, our modern world does not allow for the free time to play some of these games like we used to play. The games that you know take eight hours a night for multiple nights, things like that. In video games, you can play 10 minutes, put it down, pick it back up. And, and you know that remains one of the great advantages that will probably never be matched on a tabletop environment. Well, in the same token, though, I'll I'll say something along this line. I I'm from a generation of of gamers that you know I have friends. I have a friend now that is currently playing Elder Scrolls Five Skyrim, and I know he's been playing it since at least noon today, with it being eight thirty p.m. You know, it's it's. I think some of that comes down to, you know, the the yes, you can pick it up and put it down in ten minutes, but also there's a want for long form gaming. Oh yeah, and 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 I think that's where, like you said, the resurgence of Dungeons and Dragons, and and you know you see that in longer games. You know, yeah, I think it's a matter of what is the minimum amount of time you can play and feel like you had a good experience, and that's where the video games have the advantage. But I mean, I go back to my Civilization uh, days, you know, Sid Meier's Civilization, you know, the classic, just one more turn, and you look up the clock, and it's four in the morning. You know. <laughs> Just because you can put it out doesn't mean you're going to. <laughs> Been there. Yes. 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 I was there the other night. <laughs> it, well, Age of Empires Two is is still a minor addiction for me at times. And that just see has just seen a huge resurgence. I was I was really shocked to hear that, especially since four is what they're now promoting. But apparently, Age of Empires Two is just like everybody's all of a sudden playing it. You know, my son-in-law's playing it. I'm like, what? Two? Yeah. Seriously? <laughs> I played all the Age of Empires games. I mean, I love that game set to death. Well, Steve, do you have any more video game-based questions? Because I, unfortunately, I don't know that I've ever actually played you know, any of the, the, the more recent titles that, that Bruce has worked on. You know, we really need to fix that. 
Well, yes, I do, but because I, I think I, I think you would really enjoy Skyrim. I really do. Oh, it's, I'm I'm sure I would. Unfortunately, I need to get a better graphics card. Mm, now nah, that's a conversation we'll have. Um, <laughs> I, I I don't really have any particular that are coming to mind at the moment. And... Well, I can throw in two stories for you. Okay, that sounds good. <laughs> um, I'll throw in one that uh, the other Steve and I talked about uh, briefly before the recording started when you were elsewhere. Uh, one of the games that I've always had a soft spot for is uh, Gamma World. Uh, there's something about the wild and crazy environment and the truly hilariously fun characters you can make that always drew me to it. And when I was at TSR, my boss was Jim Ward. And Jim was the original creator of Gamma World, which, uh, if Jim's history is to be believed, is the second role-playing game ever made. I'm not sure he's right about that, but he's not far off if he isn't. And he gave me the assignment to do the fourth edition Game of World. And I was really excited about that. And one of the things that I wanted to do, being a math guy and math geek at heart, was I wanted to invert the really silly and stupid second edition D20 system with all its negative armor classes. And so I applied all my math skills to it and I turned all the numbers around and I actually created the system that is now used in fifth edition D&D with the positive uh, armor classes that start at 10 and go forward. And uh, bigger numbers are always better in all cases, die rolling and numbers on your sheet. Uh, but I didn't put any of the other good fun things that fifth edition put in. Uh, a lot of the streamlines and uh, the nice critical systems and things like that that really, really make that game sing. And I was really proud of that effort. And when I saw what they were doing in 5th in edition, and uh, Steve pointed out that there are a couple other games that did the same thing, like 3rd edition, which I didn't play as much, uh, I was really proud to see that other people had developed that too. I don't think they took it from me. I think they simultaneously developed it, so I can't claim credit for anything. But uh, I was really happy that uh, uh, something I did is still being used by other people in the industry now. And then for my... Second story, this is one I promised, Steve, but uh, held back. This is the story of how I got into the industry. And it is a cautionary tale, as well as a uh, tale to be celebrated. When I was in college, and we're talking the uh, 80s, early 80s at this point. Uh, actually, that's not true. This would have been the late 70s. I graduated in 81. I had in high school, worked on a Hewlett-Packard 2000 computer. And my college, my junior year, decided to get a Hewlett-Packard 3000 computer and transfer all of their computer services from the completely antiquated IBM 1800, which worked on punch cards. And yes, this means I've actually programmed with punch cards into something that was actually part of the new and modern age. And they hired me to work for them over the summer to transfer their accounting software and write all new accounting software in COBOL on their new HP 3000. And there's two problems with that. First of all, what in God's name are you doing having college students make an accounting system for a college? Because you know they're going to screw it up. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, COBOL? Really? Oh, yeah. COBOL is just... That's a language that's like pulling teeth. Like it, It's like they handed you a pair of pliers and went, go. Yeah, to subtract two numbers, you literally have to type the word subtract. Mm -hmm. That's how bad it is. So I'm spending my days during the summer programming in COBOL, being bored out of my mind. And so during the evening hours, I made a game in, uh, in a version of BASIC that they had. So there's nobody else on campus. So I work eight hours. I create my own stuff for eight hours. And I sleep for eight hours. And that's basically my day for the next two and a half months. And when everybody comes back to school, I had a game called Dungeon, which was a 10-layer dungeon full of monsters, and yes, it was a D&D ripoff, ready to rock and roll, and it took the campus by storm. Not necessarily because it was the world's greatest game, but because this was a new computer system and there was nothing else to play on it other than that game. And I think I had like five other little board gaming kind of things that I made as well that, that were kind of fun. So literally, the only games you could play were my games. And this was, this was the star game of the ones that I did. And everybody was playing it. Everybody was playing it. 
And it turns out that in uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, which is 45 minutes from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where TSR was based, they shared the same computer salesperson. And she was selling them a Hewlett Packard 3000. And she said to them, you know, you should check this guy out over at Beloit. He's making a game that kind of sounds like the stuff you guys make. So here I am, a senior in college, getting a degree in math, which as we all knew, you can't, you can't do anything with. I mean, a degree in math is next to useless. And TSR calls me out of the blue to offer me the dream job of working on computer games for Dungeons and Dragons. And I take two lessons from this. One is, do not sit around on your thumbs and wait for someone else to call you up and offer you your dream job. It happened to me, and that's the only time in the entire universe it will ever happen to anybody. I took it, and you can't have it. <laughs> and secondly, if you want to get into the industry, you do what they want you to do. You prove to them you can do the job. And without meaning to, that's what I did. I made the product that they wanted made. I demonstrated I could do it. And there is nothing that makes an employer happier than to look at an applicant and say, well, of course I'm going to hire him. He's already shown he can do what I need him to do. Look. And I did that. So if you want to get into whatever it is, carpentry, video gaming, uh, theater, I don't care what it is. Prove that you can do it. Demonstrate that you can do it, and you will get in. And those are the two lessons I take away from my incredibly crazy, silly way of getting into the industry. That's really neat. It's one of my favorite stories. I tell that story a lot because it's it's a wild story that it has all kinds of cool lessons to it. Your summer job turned into your career. <laughs> yep, yep. And when I first got there, uh, my boss had a saying that he was very fond of. Uh, that there are more professional game designers making their living as game designers uh, than there are astronauts. Excuse me, there are more astronauts than there are game designers. I got that backwards. Um, because there just weren't very many of us then. And mm -hmm. I had to get in on the ground floor of that, and it was just pure dumb luck of going to the school right next to where TSR was and making that game. Wow. That's that's really cool. Um, well... That sounds like a, a good place to wrap up the conversation as, as far as all that stuff. Did want to give you another chance. You know, you mentioned your book previously. If you'd like to talk a little bit more about that or you have anything else that you're currently involved in that you'd like to talk about, you know, promote a little bit, whatever. Love to have you take a couple minutes to do that. Certainly. Well, uh, having retired from the video game industry, I'm now turning my attentions to writing novels. And my first novel has been out for about a year. It's called Mischief Maker. And it would uh, be classified, I suppose, as urban fantasy. And it features uh, the Norse god Loki, who's working as a stage magician in the Chicago suburbs. And he, of course, gets into all kinds of trouble that sends him very far places that aren't the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, and I've just completed the uh, first draft of the sequel to that, which uh, will be going to my editor uh, in a few weeks here. And it'll be called Odin's Escape. So, you know... Give him a try. I think he'll enjoy them. Uh, I've spent a lot of time figuring out how to be a good writer. And uh, hopefully it's paid off with those novels and hopefully everybody enjoys it. That sounds cool. I'll have to check that out. I was not yeah. aware that you had gotten into novel writing until you told us tonight. Yeah. Well, mischief Maker. That's the one to look for. All right. As someone looking for a new novel to read, I will definitely pick that up. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And let me know what you think about it, good, bad, or indifferent. One of the advantages of uh, working in the industries I've worked in is that you learn how to take criticism properly. You know, I, at TSR, we used to uh, say that you bring your baby, and it's got your blood, sweat, and tears in it, and you love it totally, and you put it on the table, and all the other designers gather around it, and they sharpen their knives, and they cut into little teeny pieces and hand the bloody corpse back to you to go whimpering back to your office and fix. <laughs> and you have to put up with that regularly. So well, it's been great talking to you guys. It's uh, it's been a real hoot. So I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be to be here. Thank you. It's it's been it's been really really neat, and informative, and you know, interesting insight into kind of some of the history of not just our hobby, but the development of the video game industry as well. And uh, before before we let you go, though, we do have one more thing we'd like to do, and uh, 
I told you about this when we were emailing before, but uh, it's time to do Game of the Week. Ah, well, let's do it. Game of the Week. Game of the Week. You said game, so I'm up for it. <laughs> all right. So, uh, again, I, I briefed you on what this is, so we won't go through all that rundown. But uh, I know you have a game that uh, you'd like to talk about. But would you like one of us to go first? So you kind of get an idea of how we do this, or would you just like to start in? And As you probably already discovered, um, the sound of my own voice does not bother me. Uh, <laughs> you go ahead and go first, and then I will follow your lead. All right. So do you have one picked out, Steve, or do you need a minute or two? I got one picked out, or do you want to go first? Ah, go ahead and go. All right. Well, since we had Bruce on, I, I figured I would pick a, a tabletop RPG that sort of over overlapped with video games. Okay. So I have picking, I, I pick it. Wow. I can't even talk. <laughs> I have picked <laughs> fight second edition. This is the, the core premise is it is a role-playing game for telling stories of fighting game characters. So fighting games typically have these way over the top stories and, and ridiculous adventures and, and just, convoluted ways for their characters to end up in new fights to continue on and man i think that'll translate really well into an rpg and i based on the fact that it's got a second edition i think it has translated well currently on drive through for 1697 you make traditional martial artists or over the top shonen protagonists fight punch kick grapples throws blasts of key energy defy physics aerial combat launch devastating combos it's just, it's everything that fighting games are all wrapped up in an RPG, which I'm sort of down for, like in a big, bad way. I think that sounds like a lot of fun. All so right. you, you have a link for this because yes, the search thing isn't working right. I think drive through is, is not working right tonight. <laughs> okay. I will uh, message it to you on Put it in Facebook. The, the chat. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> I'll throw it somewhere there. It's in green room. All right. Okay. So, aha. Aha. <laughs> that does look fun. Yeah, it's goofy. Uh, you, know, you, know? you know who might like that is Smiley. He keeps talking about wanting to do something with Street Fighter. Yeah. Well, I think this would do Street Fighter really well. I think this is exactly what you're looking for. It's a setting neutral game, but I, I think it has its own set. It's, or it's, it's setting neutral, but it definitely has its own rule set. Yeah. It's his original rule set. Well, let's face it. No one plays fight games for the setting anyway. Well, that's what I mean. Like, if you ever play fighting games story modes, they're ridiculous. It's great. <laughs> like, currently, currently, I'm playing through um, Killer Instinct, the new one, story mode, and also Dragon Ball Fighter Z because I picked it up again. But, man, it's ridiculous. Like, it's just silly. And Dragon Ball, to be fair, is just Dragon Ball. So, that's whatever. But... It is it is bonkers the convoluted ways they get you into these fights. So, all right, that sounds fun. Yeah, it looks like a good time. <laughs> it does. So, who would like to go next? <laughs> well, I can go next if you want. Yeah, sure. Uh, I've just started a campaign of Eclipse Phase Second Edition. I'm going to post a drive-through RPG link for that also, and. Oh, there it is. Popped up all nice. This is a game that has some of its roots in the cyberpunk genre, but its core element is that it's transhumanism with a uh, a, a horror theme uh, kind of running through it. And it has an absolutely wonderful character generation system. It's a, a little bit crunchy on the character generation. And it's got what, for me at least, was a very fresh combat system. But the character generation system, it splits off your mental stats from your physical stats. Your mental stats are who you are, and they stay the same. Your physical stats depend upon which body you get sleeved into. And so you can change your bodies on a fairly regular basis. And I found that to be very, very attractive. Uh, it's a percentile skill-based game, so it is slightly crunchier than you know your typical D&D games. But their combat system has this very unique little thing where if you uh, roll for success and you get close to the value that you were looking for but didn't quite get there, that's what defines criticals. 
So it's an over 33 or over 66 with success is a critical hit. Under 66 or under 33 with a failure is a critical failure. So it's kind of baked in. Uh, and it doesn't use a ton of dice. It uses a percentile dice, and you need a couple of D10s and a couple of D6 to support it. And that's it. But it's a it's a great system that I think has a wonderful character generation. And when you go to play the game, it's not nearly as difficult as the character generation system is. So it's it's far more approachable than you would think. And you can get it for $25 on DriveThruRPG. Very cool. I'd heard a lot, decent amount about Eclipse Phase, but... I had always heard of it as, as kind of just a hard sci-fi game. Thematically, it is a hard sci-fi game, but hard in terms of it's trying to be real science-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they did their second edition, they tried to streamline a bunch of stuff. And I think they were successful enough that this is definitely should be on the must list for anybody who wants to play science fiction, particularly if they like the cyberpunk types of games. My wallet hates you. <laughs> oh, and their physical book. I mean, the 25 is for the PDF. Their physical book is absolutely gorgeous production values. I mean, <laughs> great paper stock, two uh, placeholder ribbons. Um, it's just a gorgeous book. It really is. I think he hates you, Steve. I think he, <laughs> I think he hates you because he knows that your crypt, that you may not know this, but that is Steve's kryptonite. Steve has to have the physicals. Oh. And, and yeah, yeah. So um, I bought the PDF, and then one of the guys at my table bought the physical, and he brought it, and was like, "God damn you! Now I have to go buy the physical." <laughs> uh, I have gotten better with PDFs in the last few months, but I still, for the most part, I I just like having that nice big heavy book, especially when they're really pretty nice books. Yeah, because then you don't like if you don't have the nice pretty heavy book, you can't throw anything at your players. I'm not gonna throw. A Look at you. I have that big dive for that. Yeah. You got a bunch of things in my arsenal for that. You can't run your finger down the page and then quote something obscure and dare them to find it. <laughs> well, see, you gotta, PDFs take all the fun out of that because you just search function. Yeah. 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 You got to do that, then close the book and hand it to them. <laughs> I, I had space does very interestingly is there's no money in the game. Hmm. There's a presumption that everybody just manufactures the things they need. And if you want anything that's truly interesting or powerful, you do it with favors. Oh, wow. And one of the things that I find, that's a very brave thing for them to do, by the way. But one of the things I found immediately is it changes the tone of the game. People are actually now playing the story and not just looking to get rich, which is something everybody does in every role-playing game. Just, just isn't a thing. Oh yeah, you want you want to buy a house? Okay, you have a house. Now what? Oh, you want to buy a really big house? Okay, you're gonna to have to, you know, do a favor for the guy who owns the development. Yeah, you're forcing role playing through that. That's awesome. I like it is. that. It is. Yeah. Well, going back to you know the early days with the you know, gold was experience points. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So wow. Yes. And I. Hurry <laughs> And the reason I want second is now I'm daring Steve to beat me and to beat you, Steve. (laughs) All right. Well, I don't know if it's going to beat it because I'm going to go with something. I actually literally just discovered this, but this is a game that is. Did you own a copy of of Trinity Continuum? What? (laughs) Well, no, no, that was, yeah. That's a story for another time. Um, That's a game I, I literally just discovered this evening. And this game by Grant Howitt, who some of our listeners may be familiar with for designing, well, Heart, Spire, or as maybe he's more popularly known for, Honey Heist. Mm-hmm. He has a game. It's on drive through. It's designed as a one-shot game, and it's called Havoc Brigade. Okay. Hold on. Hang on. I'll link you. You got me with the name um, and, and knowing who it is. So, I mean, you're looking at nine bucks for the PDF. Uh, just a little 25-page design for one-shots. And, and I'm just going to read the blurb because it describes it better than I could. It says, here's the deal. You're the meanest, cunningest, most brutal orcs around, and you've been selected for a special mission. You're going to infiltrate the human city of Freiburg and abduct Prince Theodore Holstein so your superiors can interrogate him from information on the Allied war plans. Of course, no one thought to specify who's in charge of the group. You've all got your own aims in mind for your time in the city. But you'll be fine, right? Holstein's going down. 
And so this is designed for up to six players, has system, illustrated character, city map, antagonists, scenario details. And, and here's the part that I love. The rules are written with an eye to make them easy to pick up and learn and encourage stupid plans and wild distractions. That sounds like a heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what I'll say also is that if you go on Grant Howitt's itch, uh, that game is currently pay what you want. Name your own price. Ooh, even better. Yeah. So I'll send um, that over to And you. I did look in the preview. There are alternate scenario ideas for your you know, base setup to use if you want to play it more than once. So, like I said, I mean, it, it, it just looks like it's very simple, I'm sure, you know, but it, it looks like one heck of a good time. Well, I will definitely have to check out both of those games that you guys suggested. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was it was absolutely enlightening. Well, thank you. I enjoyed my time here. Yes, thank you very much. If you're ever, I, I mean, when you're ready to publish your second novel, let us know. You're very much welcome back on. We'd love to have you back. Yeah. Talk about other cool I'd things. Do that. <laughs> all right. But with all that being said, as always, links to everything are in the show notes. You can find us, um, you know, everywhere podcasts are found. You found us today. You find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or not Instagram, no, Twitter, Facebook, uh, TikTok, Patreon, um, Discord. Yeah, Discord. And uh, all of that are in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And we want to remind you to be kind to one another and get out there and play some RPGs. Yes. Take care, y'all. Intro and outro music by the band 12 Noon. You can email us at meandsteverpg at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at andrpgs. Find us on Facebook at meandsteverpgpodcast. On Discord at meandsteverpgs. And as always, all of these links are in the show notes. Thank you, and be kind to one another. How much for the cigar? Cigar, 20 bucks, dog. You gotta go down the street to the store and buy that.